0: forty four uh, people baptized last Sunday. it was a great a great day, great weather. We uh, hope you were there. If not, um, number one demand has the question has been when can we do this more often? So well, if we hire a whole other staff, we could do it more often. But a big undertaking, thanks to our staff who did a remarkable job, but it was a delight uh, to see life change. One quick story, uh, well two actually the, the first image you saw a little boy coming down one of the slides. Um, uh, Ali uh, again made a decision early on that day to open everything up a half hour early for some of the kids with special needs, and so they had the whole place themselves. It was a great call, great call. And then I had a friend who I just met recently, and um, he was uh, standing over on Learning Center, leaning against one of the columns all by himself. He's a single parent, has two boys. And I was a little surprised to see him there. Um, last June, one of his sons took his own life. And he was there by himself. Doesn't know anybody in the church, really. And I went over and talked to him for a minute. And I said, I can't believe you're here. And uh, he said, where else would I be? Life change is going on. So it's, it's uh, humbling to be part of something like that. Or people are professing their faith. Watching uh, Eric uh, and... Um, some of the staff here, baptized folks, watching folks from Brentwood get baptized. It's, it's what it's all about, life change. Open your Bible to Genesis 25. This is a short section on the patriarch, the story of Abraham. We essentially have as obituary today. It is a brief genealogical account and what we call a death record in the Old Testament, not unlike the way we read obituaries today. In this transition chapter, it's important not only to be reminded of the promise that God made, but the transition is being handed over to Isaac, the promised seed. This whole promise, this whole story has been about the birth of a son, about Isaac. Because until the promised son came, the promised seed, there would be no inheritance, there would be no legacy, there would be no blessing to the world. Easton writes, the history of Abraham made a wide and deep impression on the ancient world. References to it are interwoven in the religious traditions of almost all Eastern nations. He is called a friend of God in James, faithful Abraham in Galatians, and the father of us all in Romans. It is somewhat formulaic. We have this account of his life, a genealogy, and then his death record. Not unlike an obituary today. Maybe in your family, and mine as well, my father's obituary is a record of who he survived by, who preceded him in death, the the day he died, and his internment. So we keep that in mind. Genesis 25, for you Bible study fellowship folks, precept folks, those who study the Bible in detail, it is not sequential in nature, meaning uh, 25 is a transition chapter. So it reviews much of what's happened before, and it also takes some of the storyline that's going to be unfolded in chapters 26 and following and compresses it to give us this transition. Well, first let's read just uh, verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 25 to read of the nations of Abraham, Abraham's nations, Genesis 25 verses 1 and 2. Now Abraham took another wife, whose name was Keturah. She bore to him Zimram and Joshkan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shua. Um, the first thing we want to notice is that he's probably 38 years or so after the death of Sarah. We're not precisely sure of the time stamp, but we do know he's going to bear six sons through Keturah. We don't know when he marries her. We do know that she gives him six more sons, There's a bit of a discussion about the word concubine that appears later and also in other parts of Scripture referring to Keturah. Uh, It takes quite a while to explain all the Old Testament nuances of marriage and when you take your uh, brother's wife in if he dies and so forth. But there were provisions in the Old Testament where a concubine was not wrong. It is a bit complex, but what's happened here is Sarah is dead and Keturah is married and he has more children with her. What is important are two observations from this passage. First are the nations, and secondly is the promise. The six sons mentioned become six tribal Arabian people groups, very large people groups. In Genesis 25, uh, if you look down at those names, they all become uh, nations. Back at the promise where, where God told him in 12.12 12, that you'll have, uh, nations will come from you, in chapter eighteen, eighteen, a multitude of nations will come from you. The word in Hebrew, by the way, is goy, where we get the word goyim in English. It's sort of a derogatory term that the Jew would say of other ethnos in the New Testament. Those are goy, those are goyim, those are other people groups differentiated from the blessing. So the first point is nations are fulfilled with the birth of these six sons. Secondly, is that the blessing of the world continues through Isaac, the son of promise. And that transitions into the inheritance, verses 5 and 6. Now Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So we're told in this this summary that he had uh, nations come from him, and now we're told about the inheritance differentiated from the blessings that go to the other six sons. Remember, Abraham's a wealthy man. He loved his boys. There's no reason to think he didn't care for these boys that were born to Keturah. When Ishmael is born, remember in 1818, he says to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. He says, no, but one that will come from Sarah will be your son. He loved his sons. Also recall, Abraham is a wealthy man, arguably the wealthiest man in the eastern, what we call near-eastern continents at that point. So he would be, today, and if you look at all that area around Israel, he would be one of, if not the wealthiest man at that time. So he's not just blessing these guys with, here's a couple of sheep, here's, a, you know, here's some animals, do well. Uh, for them to establish a nation, it's not, it would not be unheard of that he gave them a complement of flocks and herds and servants, and along with wealth because you have to have three things in the ancient near eastern world to survive you have to have people lots of livestock and land that's wealth and the more you produce with people the more you produce with livestock the more land you have to grow crops you become a powerful person and so these tribal people groups were blessed well isaac however is the son of promise he's the one through whom the promise of 12 12 comes 12:15 12:18 12:19 and now 25 we're reminded Let's look at the obituary proper in verses 7 through 11. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man and satisfied with life. He was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the sons of Zoar the Hittite facing Mamre the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. It came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac lived by Bir Lahai Roy. Um, the fulfillment of Genesis fifteen, fifteen for one, where he tells him he'll be buried at a good old age. Well, he's being buried at a good old age. Some of your Bibles, if you use the New American Standard, they put words in italics than art in the original Hebrew. So if you look back at verse 8, it says, He died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied. And then the with life is added. He died an old man and satisfied. That's how it would literally read. So he's, he's lived a long time. He's not regretting his facing imminent death. He dies a man full of life. In the brief record, verse 9 stands out, though, for a careful reader, and we have the reunion of Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac and Ishmael, of course, have been fractured. Ishmael is living in defiance against his people, with nothing to do with his family, but the death of his father calls him back to the graveside. Interesting how it's true today as well. You can have fractured, dysfunctional families, but when a patriarch or matriarch or grandma or grandpa dies... You go back for the funeral. It brings families back together. It was the same with antiquity. The reunion of Isaac and Ishmael must be studied in a number of ways. Ishmael was a beloved son that Abraham loved, but he wasn't the promised son. Isaac was the promised son. And when Easton, when I started out, the the, the quote writes about this affecting all ancient Near Eastern language uh, religions. It still does today. For uh, Islam, this is the key issue. Is Ishmael or Isaac the promised son? For the Muslim, they would argue that Ishmael's is the promised son, Isaac is the illegitimate son. The Jew and the believer in Christ would say just the opposite. So that tension exists even today. Well, this challenge of these two coming together is not just a story of two sons, one the promised son and one not of the promise. It's a story that goes through the entire Scripture. Scripture is a fabric that is so tightly wo- woven, the warp and woof of the fabric together, and the symmetry and design are inexhaustible. And this story is a lead story to what's going to happen with the twin brothers of Jacob and Esau. Because Jacob and Esau, from the it's it's a it's, a, it's meant to be a funny story. It's pejorative in the text, it's meant to be laughable when you hear the story that when they're being born, they're fighting in the utero, and what's Jacob called the supplanter, the heel grabber. He's grabbing onto his brother's heel. Who's going to be out of the womb first? They're just infants, but they're fighting for the first place. They're twins, but the firstborn gets the promise. The secondborn is an also-ran. The secondborn's loved, but the firstborn got the promise. And so when Esau's born first, they tie the red thread around his arm to know that he's the firstborn. When he's born first, the story fast-forwards. Esau's been an unsuccessful hunter. Comes home and Jacob's got something cooking. Literally, if my memory serves, in uh, in Hebrew, it literally, he says to Jacob, give me some of that red stuff there. He sells his birthright for a bowl of stew. It despise, he despises his birthright. It falls flat on, on modern ears. He was the firstborn. To so the firstborn comes everything. The inheritance. The promise, the father's name, everything belongs to the firstborn. He's willing to trade that off for a bowl of stew. More importantly, as their story unfolds, the tension between the two of them, the supplanter, they fight, they separate. Jacob fears for his life, all of his life, that Esau's going to kill him for what he did to him. Fast forward to the New Testament. Jesus tells a story that we call the prodigal. It's the same story. There are two sons. There's a firstborn and a younger. And the younger goes to the old man and says, give me everything you got. Give, give me my inheritance. It's essentially saying, I wish you were dead so that when you're dead I get your inheritance. Give me what's coming to me. And he goes and squanders it on loose living. He lives licentiously. And the way the Jew would hear that story would make them, it would be, it'd be horrific to hear the story. Not only is he around pigs, which were unclean animal. He's longing to eat what he's feeding to the unclean pigs to fill his own belly. Nothing worse. It would be the most disgusting thing they could envision. And he comes to his senses, and he goes back to his father. <clears throat> he says, I'll, you know the story. I'll be a worker. I'll be a hired hand. I'll be treated better at my father's hired hand than what I'm doing now. And the father sees him, and what does he do? A robe and a ring and kills a fatted calf. Sound any familiar in any other stories in the Bible? The older brother hears the commotion, comes in. His response: He's angry. This son of yours—he's your brother. I've done everything you've told. I've never done it. I've always been here. I've always done it all. And what does he tell him? Everything I have is yours, but this brother of yours has come back. So who's the sinner in the story? Well, sure, the licentious son went and sinned, but he repented and came home. The older legalistic, so that story would fall on lots of different Jewish ears. It would impugn those who disregarded the Gentile nation and it would really impugn the legalistic Hebrew who thought, I followed the law. I've done everything right. And God would say to them, right, and you've got it all. You've got my word. You've got my promise. You're my chosen people, and what did you do with it? The story is a deep and wide story. We get the first tip of it with Isaac and Ishmael. It's expanded, in Jacob and Esau continues with the prodigal. The story is that the father is the only one who can make provision. The father is the only one who can make the son right. The father is the only one who can forgive the son. The father is the one who sends his son to die for you and me. Because we're prodigals all. We're the one who went licentiously. The legalistic did everything right and thinks we're better. We fall into one or two of those bell curves. And he loves us and accepts us, but his son had to die in our place, on our behalf. Who is the prodigal? Some would argue it's a picture of Christ. The Christ comes to die to make the way for the two sons. No other solution between the tension that exists. Well, buried, they bury Abraham in the cave of Machpelah. Moses goes out of his way here to record this little detail. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we skim past important parts. And then important at different times of our reading. But it's just this cave. What's the big deal? <clears throat> well, this cave was appropriated earlier in the storyline. And Moses gives us a little information. It was in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite facing Mamre. The field was Abraham purchased. And if you go back and study this text in some detail, there's a there's a transaction that goes on to buy that piece of property. When you bought your you bought your first house, I'll never forget when Cindy and I bought our first house. I was 28. We had no money. Eleven point seven percent was the best interest in those days. Eleven point seven. Most people are paying fifteen. We had a first time homeowner bond thing. It was eleven point seven. We were thrilled. We were idiots. We were thrilled. <laughs> I remember the legal paper, not like today, but these big, and it was, it was, I'm not kidding, it was close to a ream. And we were signing on every fourth page. And as you sign them, I would ask the realtor, what does this mean? They go, oh, just sign it. Just sign it. And I'm the guy who likes to read stuff. Just sign it. Just sign it. you know. And uh, after a while, I concluded they all said the same thing. They say two things. Every piece of paper says two things. It says, if you pay your mortgage on time, you get to keep your home. Every, every page says that if you pay your mortgage, get your, if you don't pay your mortgage, we'll take your house away. That's what it says. All of them say the same thing. And then when you're finished, you get a big copy of that, in an envelope shipped to you later on, and it says, important, don't lose these documents. You know, like, okay. And so you buy a safe at your home, and you put them in the safe, and you never look at them again. Why is that stuff so important to us today? It's my house. I bought it from somebody. I'm paying a mortgage. I'm paying it on time. I'm paying the bank. Now, just that emotional analogy, not literally, land in the Old Testament was not too dissimilar. Who owns the land? By the way, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Israel, Jordan, the fight is still the same. The Palestinians, the Jews, whose land is it? That fight's never going to stop until Christ returns. It's just always going to be there in different ways, shapes, and forms. No, it is a fact. So when the land was transferred from Abraham for the cave of Machpelah, he's buying a piece of property. He's got the deed. In fact, 1818 talks about that. And he's going to have that deed, as it were. He buries Sarah there. Now he's going to be buried there. And fast forward in the storyline. Jacob later on um, tells Joseph the younger in chapter 4730 of Genesis, when I lie down with my father's, a metaphor for dying, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Now, just a little quick context. Israel is dying of famine. Joseph has become the second most powerful man in Egypt. He, he saved all the warehouse. Remember this? He saved all the all the goods. And so Isaac, uh, uh, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt to get food so they don't starve to death. And that's, of course, when they discover Joseph's alive. So the old man Jacob when he's living down there with his youngest son who he thought was dead and he's taking care of him says when I die you take me back and bury me in the land of my fathers now text doesn't precisely say the cave of Machpelah but I'm 99.9% sure that's what he's talking about it's the place of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob those patriarchs become synonymous because it was the promise of God made to Abraham that was carried on through Isaac and then carried on through Jacob and onward I want to be buried back there but most intriguing to me is chapter 50. When Joseph's about to die, he makes his brothers swear to be buried in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in chapter 50, verse 25. Again, he doesn't specifically mention the cave of Machpelah, but I would argue it's a very safe conclusion. Why is that important? Fast forward to David's time. A very obscure part of 1 Chronicles chapter 21. There's an exchange there where David buys a field from a threshing floor from a man named Ornan. And think of two very wealthy men. Think of two billionaires today in America. And there's a piece of land that a guy wants and it's worth $100,000. And and David says to this other billionaire, hey, I want that piece of property. Hey, it's yours, man. You can have it. No. Pay the full price. I'm going to pay the full price. And so Ornan receives the full price. What you've looked at for this whole series that Waylon uh, Smith designed, again, he pulled off all the architecture that's currently there today, all the buildings that are there today. So what Moriah would look like, we've talked about this many times, Mount Moriah is like saying Rocky Mount. There's the Rockies, and they have different names. So this is a mount in an area of Moriah, but this, there was one that stood out. And we don't know the size and shape of obviously, the altar that Abraham built to sacrifice Isaac on. But that Mount Moriah is today where the Dome of the Rock sits. Why is this important? David made a transaction with Ornan for a threshing floor. And right after that chapter, he starts accumulating materials to build the temple complex. And if you've been to Israel, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't, if you see pictures of what's going on right now with the Dome of the Rock and the al aqsa Mosque, all the fighting in between, they're fighting a couple of guys with knives, but that sounds big in the media. All that's going on right there will always go on right there. Whose land is it? Opinions uh, vary widely. Depending on your background, some people think land is unimportant. Uh, are, are the Jews there today? I don't know. I believe that piece of land is part of God's promise to Abraham. It was part of the covenant promise that in Judges, where they go into the land because much of the land remained uninhabited. They had not yet completed occupying the promised land. The people groups that fight there today, left and right, up and down, um, we could argue that until the cows come home. It doesn't really matter. The point is that that land is still in play because it was a promise that God made. Just as important as the promise to Abraham that you'll have a son. This is important that from that blessed son is going to come the Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, uh, Abraham is a blessing now. It is in play. Isaac has a wife. They're going to live in a fallen world in a fallen context, and Rebekah is going to go through 20 years of barrenness. Do you think Isaac was ever told the story when he was, after he was born that his mom was barren for 25 years? He certainly knew about his half-brother Ishmael. They didn't get along too well. And don't you know when he was bounced on a knee and taught as a boy that he was the promised son, that his mother's womb was dead, his father was dead and incapable of bearing a child, and he's a miracle creation of God. He's a promised blessing. And now he's married to Rebecca, and for 20 years they'll struggle the same infertility. What went through Isaac's mind? We know what went through Rebecca's mind. We read about it. It's nothing less than a creation miracle. It's nothing less than God opening that which is closed. God grants life. So in the New Testament, we're spiritually barren. We're incapable of saving ourselves. It requires a new life. And that's one of the images we're given as a believer in Christ. We have a new life in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. You're a new creation. (laughs) The patriarch, like Abraham, died. All men die. We're all given a number of days. We can live those days by faith, or we can live them by flesh. We saw what happened when Abraham tried to live by flesh. He lied and got in trouble. We have Ishmael. We see what happens when he lives by faith. Isaac is born, and all is right with the world. We see what happens when Isaac lives by faith. All things go well. We see what happens when Isaac lives by flesh. The question is, when you and I live by the flesh, or when you and I live by faith. When God told the, old, the, the uh, 75-year-old Abraham he's going to have a, a multitude of nations and a son and be a blessing to the world, do you think in his mind he went, oh, that's going to happen 75 years from now. I'm going to be almost dead and bear one son, and then I'm going to die. You see, if God told you or me a promise like that, we're probably not dead. We, we think that's going to happen in my lifetime. I'm going to start having children like like kittens. We're going to have twins and triplets, and they're all going to be strapping strong children, and we're going to go crazy, and we're going to have flocks and herds. And you know, he wanders for years. You see, God's word tells us a thing that's true regardless of our experience. We've looked at it for a whole series. Trusting God makes sense even when it doesn't. You and I don't know the outcome. We just know the promise. That's why it's called faith. How many times must I say it this way? Confident assurance of things hoped for with the conviction of things not yet seen. Hebrews 11. Confident assurance of something I hope for, conviction of things not yet seen. I don't see it. So how do we live? By, fa- by f- the flesh or by faith? We often speak of giving our life away. Um, not to sound hard or unkind or uncaring, but it seems to me American Christianity has become more about me than about others. The, the advent of all the self-help books and our identity, our passion, my life, my vision, my this, my that, my, 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 my. Yes, there's some importance in understanding who we are. Yes, there's some goodness in understanding our identity, especially if it's been hurt or damaged as children. But men and women, this life is not about me. It's about him. And the sooner we learn that, the better we are. Because the one is a life of trying to find fulfillment through doing all kinds of good and important things. The other is a life of faith that says, what am I doing to serve Christ? It's just like our prayer life. If all our prayer lives are a bunch of, God, why don't you do these things? That's a very frustrating spiritual life. If our prayer life is realigned, we're worshiping God, we're praising God, we're adoring Him for who He is, we're blown away by the characteristics of holiness, mercy, justice, kindness, we're lamenting, we're petitioning, yes, but the reframing and the realignment it's more about God's glory than seek first His, seek first me, my eye, seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And don't miss the second part of that His righteousness. Am I living righteously like you want me to live? And the, the realignment, it aligns everything in life. And the me, my, I starts to lessen its grip. It will never go away. But the me, my, and I will start to lessen its grip on us. It's about him, not about us. Does he use us? Sure. But it's about glorifying him, not glorifying self. Psalm 90 is the oldest psalm in the Psalter. I'd invite you to turn there. It is written by Moses. Moses, of course, being the author as well of the first five books of our Old Testament. Psalm 90, we don't know precisely when it was written in Abraham's life, uh, in Moses' life, whether it was written um, after or before he was told he would not be able to go into the promised land. Speculation is it was after, but we just don't know. We do know he's old when he writes it. He admits so in the psalm. I want you to look at three verses in Psalm 90 with this thought in mind about facing our life, our future. Verse 12, so teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. In the margin of my Bible I've written, gain God's perspective on our lives. Gain God's perspective on our lives. Teach us to number our days. Some of you heard the story. I've heard a couple of different versions of the story. But a man calculated actuarially how many days he would live, and he went out and bought, like you know, wholesale these giant packages of marbles, and he put them in this big container by the back door. And every day he went to work, he would take one marble out, put it in his pocket, and when he'd work all day, and then he would throw it away in the trash can at work before he went home. And that was a visual for him to realize that's one day that's gone. Uh, it's probably like watching children grow. You never really see the marbles move, but at some point you go, oh, those marbles are good. I mean, it's an image. You have to buy a lot of marbles if you're in your 30s. Um, maybe something smaller like toothpicks, I don't know. But anyway, uh, it's a picture to number our days. Why, the psalmist says, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. I, I need to gain God's perspective on my life and... and no no uh disparagement meant, but in our twenties and thirties, it's hard to have God's perspective on our life. Because you're building a family or single or getting married or you know that that age and nothing wrong with it. It's where we are. But what's he saying? Teach us. Not make us guilty about our days, not not make us morbid about our days, not put your heel in the back of our necks and say you're gonna die. But Teach us to number our days. This is all you got? Give me your perspective on my life, that I might present you a heart of wisdom. That I'm. Uh, this is how many days I've got. How am I going to live those days wisely for you? Look at verse fourteen. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be may, and be glad all our days. Now, if you have the NASB it's going to read loving kindness. If you have the ESV, it's going to say your steadfast love. If you have the NIV, you're on your own. Satisfy us in the the morning with your chesed. We've talked about this many times. Rob mentioned it a couple weeks back. Chesed means two things. God loves to be loyal to his chosen people and covenant promise. CPCP, chosen people and covenant promise. God has chosen people, and he makes covenant promises to those people. The ethical character of God, he's lovingly loyal. He's not loving like we love emotionally. It's a theological, ethical love he has towards his promise and his people that will not be altered. So the Old Testament saints understood this better than we do. God, you love us, not because we're good people, because we're stiff-necked people. You love us because you made a promise to us, because you chose us, and we can depend on that. So what is Moses saying here? Satisfy us in the morning with your chesed. Remind me every day I wake up, you chose me and you love me. Now, put this in perspective. When something, how many of you in the last two weeks had a miserable, horrible, what is the awful, tall, miserable, horrible, what's that kids booked? The horrible, awful, miserable, terrible day, whatever it is. How many of you had one of those last few weeks? You had one of those. Raise your hand up. Okay, most of you are in denial, but some are honest. Okay. And it, you went to bed And then what? The next morning, maybe it wasn't all perfect, but it was a little better, wasn't it? What is it about uh, six, seven, eight hours of sleep that gives you a new perspective? Why do we say sleep on it? Go home and sleep? I don't understand the line, no. But there's something about going to bed and facing a new day, right? And so when you go through difficulties, when you go through losses, tragedies, you bury a loved one. You bury a child. Tomorrow morning doesn't feel good. But mornings turn into weeks, turn into months, turn into years. And little by little, there's a new morning. The, the hurt and loss never go away, but it's a different perspective. And the psalmist, look what he says carefully Satisfy. Hence, make it all right. Satisfy us. So, tomorrow morning when you wake up and it's Monday, you go back to work, if you dread it, if you're anxious, if you're excited, if you. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a holiday for you tomorrow. For some, uh, you get a, you know, satisfy me tomorrow morning with your chesed. But look what he says: that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. This isn't just a moral. You know, we're all going to die. Do I live by faith? Do I live by flesh? How am I facing my fear? And finally, verse fourteen, verse seventeen: Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. I've written in the side of my Bible, let my life have meaning. I want the work that I'm doing in medicine, in education, in uh, finance, in building, in construction, in music, in writing, in parenting. I want the work on my hands to mean something. Now, keep in mind the old man's picture here. Moses, let's say He's in the wilderness when he's writing this, which I think is good a good observation. People have argued about the number that have come across the Red Sea uh, from Egypt. Um, conservative estimates, I would argue, 1.2 million people. So most of the films, when there's a handful of people trolloping across the mud, the most recent one that was done was terrible. It was just terrible. Sorry, it's my, I don't have any opinions, but it was terrible. Um, 1.2 million people come across that sea, and Pharaoh's army is drowned So we're talking a lot of water. We're not talking a puddle, number one. Now, what happened to everybody over 20? Remember? What happened in the wilderness? They die. All those who are under 20 are going to live. So they're going to wander around the wilderness all those years in one long funeral procession. Some people that have done the math have estimated there could be as many as 700 funerals a day with 1.2 million people, and you do the math on how many were over 20. Let's just cut those numbers in half. Let's just say only half a million came out, and let's say they're only doing 300-some burials a day. Now, you're Moses. You're in a Bedouin construct tent made out of rug and skin and poles, and you're under the cloud because when the cloud stops, you stop. And Moses, of course, would have his special treatment because he was the father of it all. He was the lawgiver. He's the one who's seen God and talked to him face to face. He's treated differently, rightly so. He's a servant of Yahweh. And so he's got a little compound, let's imagine. And the groups are in their relative tribes around the wilderness. Let's just say half a million for conversation's sake. What's he watching all day? Funerals. It couldn't go a day without it, with that many people. Everybody over 20 is going to die. And then, fast forward, when they go into the land, those kids were 19 when this started. Perspective. Moses, writing this somewhere in the mix of that, teach us to number our days. Satisfy in the morning with your loving kindness. And let my hand's work have meaning. I think when the text says that Abraham died a man full of faith, satisfied with life, that's a pretty good epitaph. You need to know that if I died this week, if I had a a massive TIA, if I had a heart attack, if I stroked out, if I had an accident and I was dead, you need to know Michael easily died satisfied with life and full of faith. don't know if I could have said that a few years back. And I don't mean to sound pretentious. Some of you may think I'm sounding pretentious. I just think I'd be okay. In fact, I know I'd be okay. Cindy tells me she'd be sad, but I think I'd be fine. I'd be satisfied, because this earth not my home. Or smoke coming out of a faucet or steam on the mirror in the bathroom or steam off the kettle or the defroster blowing away the humidity when you turn it on in the morning. Or nothing. Are you living full of faith or full of fear? Fear of our children fear our marriages, we fear our grandchildren, we fear our health. I want to die satisfied with life. And the only way you're going to die satisfied with life is you're living by faith, not by fear. A few years back, um, many years back, my dad died five years ago. And he had two older brothers. They all died within 18 months, which was interesting. My dad was 88, the youngest of the three. And uh, way back... And on his 50th high school reunion, I was living in the D.C. area. Cindy had taken the children to go on a vacation down in Texas at the time. And uh, for whatever reason, I decided to go surprise my dad for his 50th high school reunion up in north of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, a little town called Ford City, about 45 minutes north of Pittsburgh on the Allegheny River. Very impoverished town, small town, about 4,000 people total, divided by racial railroad tracks. You live on one side or the other, still today. And I went to visit these, uh, my dad and his two brothers were there. And I call it my grumpy old men weekend. My Uncle John, Uncle Denny, he never married. Uncle John had six kids. Denny never had any family. And my dad had three. And uh, I'm a person who I can talk to anybody. I have the curse of gab and I have no trouble carrying conversation. I probably didn't say a 100 words the entire three days I was there. But I asked questions. I'd say, hey, Uncle Denny, Uncle John, Dad always told me the story about, and then I would tell the story, and they'd go, oh, Joe, you got that all wrong. And the three of them would argue about the story because they all had different memories and different perspectives. Now, the remarkable thing was they all looked so much alike. The fruit did not fall far from the tree, number one. Their mannerisms, the way they held their fork and knife, the way they crinkled their nose, for their trifocals. I mean, everything about them was frighteningly the same, but they couldn't be more different. They couldn't be more different. I don't know that Uncle John or Denny ever smiled, or if they did, you couldn't tell. My dad had this great sense of humor. And even when they were all arguing about, you know, what really happened and the way it happened, my dad had this chortle, the Joe Easley chortle. He had this kind of chortle about himself and he laughed at everything. And I'll I'll forever savor that memory of those three grumpy old men. We went up to the small Catholic church, it's abandoned now, but it's on a knoll on this hill. And on that knoll are, I don't know, four or five hundred gravestones, many of which have the last name Easley. And that's Cape of Machpelah for me. That's where my forefathers are. I don't know if any of them knew Christ. But that's where they're buried. And it called my dad back to Fort City again and again and again. Why, don't, why are we called back to the dirt where we came out of the uterus? I'll never understand that. But he called him back. It called him back. Well, I did not know until after my father died. <clears throat> the obituary named a bunch of other Easleys. Well, they were literally born on the farm on the Allegheny River, lost it in 27. They had a 125 acre beautiful farm on the Allegheny River on the uh, eastern side, gorgeous piece of property. And um, the obit talked about the sons who had died and the brothers and so forth and those who were, you know, the children who remained. And it mentioned. Other easily other that were born to my paternal grandmother and grandfather, that none of us in the family knew had ever lived. Now, in those days, you didn't make a big deal about a stillborn in the or in, you know nineteen tens and twenties. They probably didn't even have a funeral. They probably just buried them. But maybe those children died in an accident. Maybe they died of an appendix bursting. Maybe they died because they were malnourished. Maybe I mean, who knows? But memory serves, there were five other Easleys that my older sister and brother and I never knew existed. And I got to thinking, life is really short. I don't even know my grandparents. I don't even know the other uncles and aunts I might have had. And I think I'm something. You think you're something? You live by faith. Or you live by fear. You live by faith or you live in the flesh. And I want you to die a man, a woman, full of faith, satisfied with life. And the only way you do that is by living when it doesn't make sense. You trust him. Not by trying to figure it out in the flesh. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness toward us. We thank you that you're patient beyond description As Moses interceded and prayed, confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm for us the work of our hands. Let our life have meaning beyond making money and providing for our children. But may our life have meaning spiritually. That those around us know the person and work of Christ, we pray. In his name, amen. God bless you. Have a great week.